Hey, Deserving Listeners. Today I'm going to answer patron emails. This first email is from an anonymous anonymous patron. She writes, I am, um, I am an extremely controlled, emotionally absent human being with an overactive nervous system. I developed a habit of finding strangers on the internet to have sex with, which would send me into a dissociative state where I no longer had to feel anything. The more I did this, the more I discovered that certain things made me, disso- made me dissociate stronger. I'm basically two distinctly different people, completely separate. I like particularly violent interactions. I like impact. I like being hit. And I discovered that if an encounter was intense enough, there was a pivotal, pivotal moment where I could totally release myself and sob uncontrollably. It was like in that moment, my two selves were coming back together, and the reality of what was happening was overwhelming. I know this sounds a lot like BDSM, bondage and submission, but it's not the same. I look for dominant types, dom types, because they understand the impact I'm looking for. But when I'm with them, they can tell something is not normal about me. My therapist thinks I'm re-traumatizing myself with these encounters. What I would really like is to find a therapist who could use physical compression or impact or touch to help me get to the emotional place without subjecting myself to these unpredictable encounters with strangers. Ten out of ten therapists I've contacted will not agree to any such kind of touch at all. Is this a real thing? impact for a therapeutic benefit? Can a therapist touch a client? Are they out there? Is my language even correct? Is there a way to des- to describe what I need in order to get what I'm looking for when I talk to therapists? I don't want mindfulness. I don't want to do breath work. I don't want to just talk about it. I don't want a massage therapist. I want a mental health clinician who can use my physical body to break down my impenetrable emotional barrier. End of email. So pretty interesting email here. Um, Right. So if I'm if I'm understanding right, you uh, suffer from dissociation and you you're in therapy, which is great. And you probably also have dissociative identity disorder. Um, having two distinct selves. You can have dissociative identity disorder and just have two alters. You might even have more alters that you don't know about. It's, as people discover their dissociative identities, they uh, sometimes uncover like, oh, I, I guess I had more than two. Um, it's also possible that you will find that dissociative identity disorder doesn't really quite encapsulate your experience with dissociation. You might not really identify two different selves as you start to explore this. <clears throat> but either way, it's definitely in the dissociation camp, and whatever label we to it, it will put to it, it doesn't really matter. You must have been through some significant difficulties while you were growing up, and that led to the need to have a dissociative mechanism to protect you from those traumatic events as you were going through them when you, when you were young. And as an adult, you've tried to find ways to reintegrate the self, or at least for the two selves to be able to to know about each other. And one of the things that you found 
is that when you find people to have sex with and they, um, ha- you know, they're, they, you, cons- you use consensual BDSM essentially where they um, use the, you know, their bodies and they impact you. I, I don't know exactly what that means, but some kind of physical domination, physical impact on you. You find that <clears throat> your, uh, it seems as though your two selves come together and you have this total release of emotional energy, this total catharsis, and you sob uncontrollably. And from your language, it sounds like that it feels very healing and very um, healthy for you to have that experience. And when you go to therapy uh, from, again, reading, reading between the lines of your email, you actually cannot reach that place where you can release your emotions and you find that uh, in therapy, as you talk about things, as you do mindfulness or whatever your therapist is recommending, you don't have any emotional uh, connection, and you you know, and so you describe yourself as an extremely emotionally absent, emotionally controlled uh, person. But you have this overactive nervous system where uh, all these things are going on underneath the surface. So what it sounds to me is that your uh, main identity, your main altar, your main self that is present most of the time, learned to deny emotions and to control emotions in a subconscious manner. So even when you try to identify with your emotions, you can't really access them because this is all a subconscious process. Then you have this other self that actually holds a lot of emotion and allows itself to uh, express those emotions. And when you <clears throat> have these intense physical experiences, uh, then uh, sexual physical experiences, then you find that you can actually access that emotional part of you. Uh, that's, you know, basically what you're telling me. So I'm just sort of paraphrasing what you're saying. I, I hope you talk with your therapist about this. Um, it's very important that you do that. Um, <clears throat> So you're saying that um, you're you're looking for a therapist to <clears throat> excuse me. I just had dinner, so <clears throat> a lot of stuff in my throat. I think so. You're you're looking for a therapist to to use touch. So most therapists they use talk therapy, and you're finding that that's not really helping because it just plays into your uh, automatic defense mechanism of intellectualization and denial of emotions. And you're, you're finding this, I need some kind of physical contact to, to, you know, make therapy actually work for me, which is good. It's good that you notice that about yourself. That's great. But you contacted 10 therapists and all 10 of them said they will not agree to any kind of touch at all. And now you're wondering, wait, do, do any therapists do this kind of stuff? Uh, because I, I, I know what I'm – I have an idea of what I need in therapy, and I, I'm not finding it in therapy. I don't want to do mindfulness. I don't want to do breath work. I don't want to just talk about it. And it's funny because as I was reading your email, I was like, huh, I wonder if a massage therapist would help, would help, you know, because that, that is physical touch for an hour or more that is considered ethical and therapeutic. And you, you say, I don't want a massage therapist. So it sounds like maybe you tried that and – uh, it wasn't impactful enough or something, which, you know, makes some sense. If I did suggest it, I would say, you know, just give it a try. So basically um, what you're running into is 
our society is phobic about touching in general. You know, for two men, for example, to say two 45-year-old men who are friends, who are heterosexual, to walk down the street holding hands would be uh, extremely strange, right? In other countries, it's fine because why wouldn't you want to hold the hand of your friend? Why wouldn't you want that physical contact? Um, we're, we're one of the probably in terms of the history of humankind – um, and maybe even particularly in Seattle, where some of the most phobic touching people. In fact, a lot of times what you'll hear people say when they do see people touching or they hear about people touching each other, they will immediately um, talk about how creepy it is and how creepy it sounds. You know, like like one of the things that uh, I will bump up against sometimes is when you work with kids as therapists – there's t- there tends to be a lot of touch that just happens uh, automatically. And when I say that to some people, they they sort of cringe. They're like, what, you know, because like I'll, I'll talk about myself. I'll be like, um, you know, when I would work with five-year-olds or seven-year-olds or 10-year-olds, um, yeah, I would touch my clients. And just that phrase alone will trigger people. They'll be like, oh, what do you mean? You're a man and you're touching your, these children and, you know, are, are some of them girls? Like you're touching these girls and it, it, it automatically sets off this alarm system in people, which is, which is stupid. Uh, what's, what's wrong with touching people? Now, some touching is bad, but most touching is not. <laughs> some people are predators as they touch. They're grooming people. But most people are not predators. The vast, vast majority of people are not sexual predators. Now, do we have problems in our society with non-consensual touch? Do some people touch too much? Joe Biden, for example, when people should you know, keep their hands to themselves or make sure that other people are okay with it? Yeah, I mean, that's a thing for sure. But you know, most touch is fine and, and doesn't cross boundaries and can actually be extremely therapeutic. And so, you know, we live in this phobic culture. And just to clarify about kids, if you don't know, any of you clinicians who do work with kids, you know this. But when you work with kids, you don't just sit on a couch and talk. You know, a five-year-old doesn't talk about their problems typically. So you get down on the ground and you're playing with toys and Legos and puppets and cards and Jenga and, you know, throwing a ball. And you're, you're doing stuff like that. You're playing on the ground with the kid. And sometimes, you know, the kid, they're five and they have attachment issues and they want to be attached to you. So they just like stand up, walk over and they just hug you or they want to sit next to you um, while they kind of touch you. You know, they want to sit directly next to you or they, they want to hug you at the end of the session or they want to hug you at the beginning of the session. These are all touching moments. These are all moments in which the therapist and me included would be touching clients. And that is not only normal, but it can be extremely therapeutic. So, uh, and that's just the reality. <clears throat> but anyway, so I, this is all just to say that we live in a, in a touch-phobic society, and our profession of psychotherapy exists within that touch-phobic culture, and thus uh, our field is touch-phobic as well, in the same way that we live in a racist culture, and thus... Um, the field of psychotherapy can be nothing other than racist because we just live in a racist. It's not like 
psychotherapy exists outside of American culture. It exists inside of it. So, so we are a touch phobic uh, profession in general. Having said that, there are some people who have seen the light and get training and education, have ethical codes. There's a whole field of what we of what we call using touch and therapy or somatic therapists, dance movement therapists as well. There's various different words. So you're asking me, patron, what language am I looking for? And the language you're looking for in all likelihood is the word somatic, which just means body. And what you're looking for is somatic therapist or body work therapist. Now, this is a pretty um, – there's a wide variety of clinicians. If I just Googled somatic therapists or body work therapists, I would get a wide variety of competence, a wide variety of approaches, a wide variety of philosophies. It's sort of a – kind of a wild west in some ways. Some of them will be operating within the ethical codes and some of them won't. And so – but that's the field you want to go into. If you want to Google something – Look for a somatic therapist. Um, and also I would ask them prior to beginning therapy how they gauge touch, what, what do they do with touch. I would tell them specifically what you want and why and, and gauge their response. If they seem to have a, a pretty good uh, response to it, like they're not afraid of what you're asking and they have a clear idea of how to – facilitate treatment for you, then that might be someone to experiment with. But if, but if they don't really have a very good answer, then, you know, it's, it's, it's less, um, you know, you're less assured that this therapist knows what they're doing and has a good approach. Cause some people have very, a, a lot of experience, again, a lot of training, a, a lot of clear ethical, um, you know, guidelines that they follow regarding using touch and therapy and they really know and, – and they would immediately know what you meant when you said that you, because of dissociation, wanted physical impact, some kind of you know, very big impact. What, what is likely happening for you – and again, there's no way to know this. In some ways, this is psychobabble I'm, I'm about to say. But the way I see it is when we're uh, conceived up until the time that we're, I don't know, two or two years old, maybe a year old – we are often restrained and held by our parents. Think of the, you know, the swaddling clothes that you put on a newborn. You, um, you know, you swaddle the, the newborn in a blanket and the, the infant can't move their arms or legs. They're completely, um, you know, tied up essentially. They're restrained. And this can be extremely um, – uh, this this can be very pleasurable to a child in that they feel like they're being cared for, like they're being held, and it, it relaxes them, makes them feel safe. And uh, and there's lots of other experiences that can that are similar to this, like when you're um, you know nine months old and you are standing up and you're trying to do some mobile action and you fall down and you hit your head and you're scared in that moment most kids will want to be picked up and held by their parents right they want to be held close to the body they want they might even want to be held really tightly so that's a instinct 
instinctual desire that we have, and we associate it with safety, and we associate it with, um, I don't know, a lot of good things and uh, love and attachment. So if your trauma happened during those phases of life, it's possible that you have a pretty big part of you that's still waiting for that need to be met. And the only way that, it, given your lifestyle, you have found that need to be met is by meeting uh, BDSM males who will, um, you know, do things to you that are that are, have that sort of adult sexual uh, similarity, maybe through um, mock strangling or they lay on top of you or they restrain you or, you know, it's all consensual. It's not done, um, not non-consensual, but it, and if they have a certain intensity around it, then I'm guessing that regresses you to that place when you wanted to be swaddled and held when you were young. And then all of a sudden your body is allowed to develop and heal from six months old to say two two years old. That's always that's the way I always kind of look at it is when we're relationally traumatized growing up, and all of us have just a little bit of it. We need to regress back to that point in our adult life and redo it. And once we get that need met, then we can move forward, and we have less of a need to regress, and thus we um, mature and have less reactivity in situations, less immaturity in situations. And so uh, you've just found in your life that, wow, when I do this, it, it, it's like the only time that I ever get this kind of thing. And so I could imagine why it would be quite compulsive to want to recreate it. Now, if you had a partner, uh, a long-term partner or a friend, it's also quite possible to engineer that with them as well. So I'm not, because uh, in your in your mind, it's like, well, I can either, you know, you started off this email saying that you meet random strangers on the internet to have sex with, which is totally fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, but there's, you know, pros and cons to that kind of lifestyle. It's also possible that if you just had a partner, a long-term partner who knew how to do this sort of thing, um, even if it was just a sexual relationship, uh, it seems like that would maybe facilitate a little bit more safety and, um, I don't know, continuity over time with someone who could do that for you. You can even have friends do it, not necessarily sexual things, but they could swaddle you and hold you down and hold you, these kind of things. Um, I don't know. You obviously should talk with your therapist about it. I have no way of knowing that these things about you, but these are ideas you could explore with your therapist. You also talk about you know wanting a therapist to do these kinds of things, and it's really unknown. Uh, I think you're at the beginning of this discovery. There's... If you find a somatic therapist that does body work or even, like I said, even a dance movement therapist because they don't necessarily put hands on you, but they can do things where you can feel like their hands are on you. It's hard to explain, but um, well, maybe I should explain. Like a dance movement therapy intervention might involve um, them wrapping you up in something and then um, – putting a rope around you and then a rope around them. And then you just uh, lean backwards while you uh, feel the tension of the rope, sort of like tug of war. And so you're not, you don't 
you're not in physical contact with your therapist, but you can feel your therapist's body because you are both tethered to this rope. Anyway, so there's a lot of different things that you can do and experiment with that might actually facilitate you healing and um, returning to that regressive state so that you can develop. Um, so now there's a line, though, that even the most liberal somatic therapist, I would hope, will not cross. Obviously, they're not going to have sex with you. There's going to be certain somatic interventions that you might want that they aren't willing to do because it's just too risky uh, for good reasons and for bad reasons. Good reasons because we don't want to cause client harm. Bad reasons because we have a society that's phobic about touching. So that's what I would say is talk with a somatic therapist, get a consultation. Um, in the meantime, you know, keep going to your current therapist and talking about it. There's a lot of ways to approach dissociation. Um, so uh, I commend you for trying. I commend you that you are like, I want to I wanna do something about this. Um, and you deserve to heal. But the and, – and, and I absolutely I would experiment with somatic work. In the meantime, keep talking. Find someone that's good with dissociation. <clears throat> you, you, at the end of your email, you're like – I don't want to do mindfulness. I don't want to do breath work. I, I wonder if this is some comment on your current therapist approach. Um, you know, there are some therapists who really focus on mindfulness and, and breath work and that kind of stuff. And that's great. But it's possible that um, your talk therapist doesn't know the other ways to use talk therapy to actually help you with dissociation. There's a lot of ways to approach dissociation, essentially, and to approach trauma. And it's possible that your therapist doesn't know all those ways. And so, um, again, I would talk with your therapist and I would stay with that person. But, um, um, you know, I, I might get a second opinion even about your talk therapy. Uh, you say also, you said something else that I thought. Oh, you said that your therapist thinks that you're re-traumatizing yourself with these encounters. So it's possible that you are. Uh, it's also possible that you're not. The, the way to know is if, or how do I explain this? The, the main thing you want to explore is uh, you're essentially the distress you feel in any given moment. When we have heightened distress, like on a scale from 1 to 10 when you're like an 8, or 9, or 10, then you run the risk of actually re-traumatizing yourself. If it's like a four or a five or below, then yeah, it's distressing, but it's not potentially re-traumatizing to you. Now, it, you know, this isn't a science. It's hard to lock this down. But that's one of the questions you want to ask yourself is, how much distress, how much terror am I going through? Because it's possible that given your emotional um, issues that it's hard for you to know your emotions or express them. It's possible that you are <laughs> re-traumatizing yourself in these moments because you're desperately looking for some way to heal. And to you, this is the only way to do it. It's possible that you are re-traumatizing yourself, but you don't really know because a long time ago, you learned not to be connected to your feelings because it was helpful to cut, be, cut yourself off from your feelings. So, you know, your therapist could be right about that. There's just a lot of unknowns here at this point. I think you're at the beginning of your treatment um, path. Uh, you, def you, you know, 
you've, you've come a long way and that, you know, you have an issue, you know how to talk about it. You, you're starting to connect with your needs. You're starting to know the kind of therapy you want. You're starting to assert that that's all great, but you have a lot of discovery ahead of you, I, I suspect. And so uh, just proceed with caution and with the advice of your therapist. All right, so let's get to some other emails. But before we do that, I just want to say that the rest of this episode is just for patrons of the podcast. So if you want to hear my response to more emails, that I'm probably another hour or two of email responses, you have to become a patron of the podcast by going to patreon.com. That's patreon.com. Become a patron of the podcast. You'll get access to the rest of this episode as well as hundreds of other episodes that are patron-only. We, we've made almost a thousand episodes. And I think, I don't know, three or 400 of them are patron only, arguably our best episodes. So go to patreon.com, become a patron of the podcast, and you will be able to listen to the rest of this episode. So do it now. Do it, do it, do it. All right. Welcome to the patron zone people. This next email is from an anonymous patron. He writes, Today, a girl told me her story about when she was raped some years ago. She seemed very much convinced that it was really all of her fault. She said she could have ran away. She shouldn't have been alone with him. She shouldn't have trusted him so quickly, etc. I tried to tell her that, sure, we can always learn from bad experiences and be more careful, but this shouldn't have happened regardless of what she did, and, and this was not her fault. But it didn't really seem to land with her. I probably didn't express it very well, and with her having this experience with her for so many years, I'm not sure it would have made a difference regardless of how I expressed it. Why do we do this? Why are we so good at finding reasons for things uh, that are our fault and then beat ourselves up for years and years and years. I have experienced the same thing myself, not being raped, but through my years of loneliness, depression, and anxiety, I often think I must have chosen this or I must deserve this loneliness, depression, and anxiety. Why are we doing this to ourselves? Does this mechanism help in any way? Is there a hidden good purpose of it somehow? Why do we do this? End of email. Yeah, excellent questions. I'm glad that you're trying to help her. Before I go into answering your questions, I just want to comment on a little bit about what happened. I don't know. I wasn't there. I would have to get more details from you and from her. But from the sound of it, it sounds like your approach, although coming from a good place, was not very helpful to her. And I think you might have learned a good lesson. It sounds like it sounds like you have learned that lesson. You know, Something that might be obvious to you might not be so obvious or helpful to other people. Let me give you an example. Let's say a child is learning how to ride a bike, and they fall down in a bad way, and they skin their knee on the pavement, and there's a little bit of blood. And you walk up, and you say, you'll be okay. It's just a scratch. You'll recover. It's really best if you want to learn how to ride a bike, get back on the bike and try again. The child might not want to hear that in that moment, right? Well, what you're saying is true. The child will be okay. It is just a scratch, and it probably is best if the child just gets back on the bike and tries again. 
So what you're saying is true, but it doesn't really address what's happening emotionally. You, from your description, I don't know, and maybe you've already come to these conclusions, so maybe I'm just preaching to the choir, but just to be explicit about this, you, it might have been helpful if you tried harder to detect the emotional landscape and responded to that instead. She probably just needed someone to hear her. Uh, you, you also could have, um, in the moment, just mildly suggested that she was not to blame for the event because, you know, you're like, whoa, she's really blaming herself. You could have just been like, well, you know, it's not your fault. And then when she pushes back on that, just go, oh, okay, well, I don't know. She's not really ready to hear that or that's not really what she's asking for in the moment. And then, you know, just you just want to listen to her. Now, I get it. You were trying to help and you thought it would be helpful to... Um, help her to not blame herself. I totally understand that impulse. I would have had the same one. And I probably, similar to you, would have said something like, well, you know, this isn't your fault. But when people push back on that, just say, oh, even though what I'm saying is right and what they're saying is wrong because they're not to blame, maybe that's not really what they're wanting from me in this moment. They they want to um, have me just be here for them. Uh, but anyway, let's let's look at. You're asking, you know, why do people do this? Why do why do we beat ourselves up? Because you're acknowledging that you beat yourself up too. It's like, why do we do this so much? So, off the top of my head, I can think of five main reasons why victims blame themselves for being raped, and why you blame yourself for being lonely, depressed, and anxious. It's because our society blames us, and we've internalized that blame and that oppression. In your examples that you've given, you've, you've stumbled upon some of the classic ridiculous notions in our society. Number one, when people are sexually assaulted, it's the victim's fault. That's a known notion that's out there. Something that they wore, something that they said they shouldn't have been. It's, it's, a, it's a known phenomenon. Number two, quote-unquote, slutty women are bad people and deserve to be mistreated. You'll see this often as well. Like when there's a uh, you know, criminal investigation or a, or a trial involving a rape, often what is brought up is notions of, quote-unquote, sluttiness on behalf of the victim. How many partners they've had, um, you know that kind of thing, which of course is ridiculous. <laughs> it's just like, it's completely irrelevant. It means nothing. Um, so, you know, it's sort of be like, uh, uh, if someone like, let's say a, a giant truck runs a red light and just plows into a family SUV and the children and the parents are, you know, all injured. And part of the defense, you know, for the truck driver, the attorney stands up and grills the family on, how often are you on the road? How often do you drive? It's like, well, what the fuck does that have to do with the fact that this truck ran a red light and ran me over? Um, I could be on the road 24-7. It doesn't give that person the right to run me over. Well, it's the same with quote-unquote sluttiness defenses for rape uh, perpetrators. It doesn't matter how often someone has sex consensually. 
just because someone has constant consensual sex doesn't mean a rapist has the right to rape you. <laughs> like consensual sex is fine. It's wonderful. Driving around the city and you know transporting yourself from A to B is expected. Plowing into running a red light and plowing into someone is wrong. There's no justification for that. Raping someone is wrong. There's no justification for that. So, but as I, I, the fact that I have to fucking say this reveals that our society is still stuck in like the 1600s when it comes to ideas like this. 300 years from now, people are going to look back at us and we're going to be like Handmaid's Tale. They're going to be like, man, 2019. Boy, what a – I mean they were just a shade away from like the Salem witch trials because we are. We're better than we were before, but we are not that far ahead. <laughs> we like to think of ourselves as we are, but we are not. The fact that rape victims blame themselves and the fact that it was not only rape victims, but you are lonely, depressed, and anxious – uh, I guarantee you 99% of the cause of that has nothing to do with you and has everything to do with you being victimized by shitty parents or um, shitty circumstances or genetics or a society that doesn't understand how to help you or um, I don't know, just something that is completely out of your control, certainly not – you're doing. It's not like you woke up in the morning and said, I'm going to go on a campaign to make myself feel like shit. I mean, <laughs> that, that's just absurd, right? So, but we have that notion too. You know, we have this notion that, you know, people who suffer from any kind of mental illness or any kind of loneliness, well, it's like, what are they doing? You know, how come they don't look on the bright side? How, you know, if you, if you just, how many times, anonymous patron, have you heard when you've told people that you're depressed and anxious and isolated and lonely? How many times have you heard someone give you a very simple response? And by implication, if the answer was so simple, then you are stupid or you're to blame for just not attempting these simple solutions. You know, get a hobby or exercise more or just get out there. It's like, uh, so what you're saying is if I just do this small little act, I won't be depressed and anxious and lonely? Is that what you're saying? That's basically what they're saying. You know, so we have these notions from our society. Um, we also just tend to blame crime victims in general. You know, like someone breaks into my car. The immediate response is, "Did you have anything of value that was visible, like a bag or a, you know, a wallet or something?" And the thing I always think is, how is that fucking my fault? Uh, sure, uh, you know, reduce the likelihood of someone breaking into your car. But how is a crime against my property my fault? It's the perpetrator's fault. And sure, I, I could probably try to curb and I don't, you know, leave shit out in my car because uh, but if someone had broken into my car, which they have, you know, over the years, if someone's first response is, you know, what'd you have out? It's like, um, how about just some sympathy for the fact that some criminal decided to target my property and violate me. You know, how about just sticking to that overarching narrative that some immoral or, you know, desperate person did this terrible thing to me? How about that be the headline? And then after a while, assume that I'm already thinking about how to 
shore up my behaviors so that it doesn't happen in the future. I don't, I don't need to be told that. It's the same, you know, oh, you're depressed. Well, you know, are you exercising enough? Are you getting enough sleep? And it's like, okay, you know, these are, these are not idiotic questions, but they shouldn't be the topic sentence. <laughs> you know, the topic sentence is, um, man, I'm sorry you're going through that. Uh, I don't know what to say. Can I do anything to help? I don't know. What do you want? Um, you know, t- to contrast this with other things in our society, because some m- people might be like, well, maybe our society blames all sorts of victims, but we really don't. If if I had a termite infestation in my basement, I don't think anyone would blame me for that. Because Why? Because I'm not to blame for that. <laughs> How is it my fault that I had termite infestation? Or... Uh, you know, one time I had a, like one of my water heaters uh, sprung a leak. No one comes into my house and says, you know, well, what were you doing? Uh, did, did, you, you know, did you check it every day? No one, no, everyone's just like, man, it sucks to have your water heater burst. Uh, it happens to the best of us. And it's sort of random. And even if you tried to make sure that wasn't happening, sometimes, you know, it just happens and there's nothing you do. Or... Even things like people getting cancer, like Alex Trebek of Jeopardy has cancer. I don't hear anyone blaming him for the fact that he has cancer. Now, is it possible that he did something that raised his risk of cancer? Maybe. But no one's pointing that out because most people in our society see cancer rationally, which is that it's a tragedy that most people do a lot of things to avoid, but it just kind of happens. You know, when your number comes up, you get cancer. And again, are there things Alex Trebek could have done to reduce his risk of cancer that he didn't do? Perhaps. You know, who knows? I don't know. But that shouldn't be the the headline of the message of what did Al, you know, how did Alex bring this this cancer upon him? Well, why do we do it with cancer? Why are we why why do we not blame the victim when it comes to cancer? But we blame rape victims for being raped. And we blame people with depression and anxiety for having depression and anxiety. Why do we do that? Because of cultural notions and cultural teaching and cultural, I don't know, just things that our culture retained from the old days. And uh, it's just, you know, it's, it's silly. It's probably related to the patriarchy. It's probably related to economics in some ways. It's probably related to religion in some ways. Uh, but regardless, we we know we have that. We blame ourselves for being raped and we blame ourselves for having a mental illness because society blames us. So that's number one. Number two is that it helps us to see the world as being under our control. You know, why do we blame ourselves for these things that we shouldn't be blamed for? You know, let's just stick to the to rape victim blaming. Why do we blame ourselves? Well, again, one of the reasons because society blames us. But another reason is because it's a cognitive bias that helps us to feel as though the world is under our control. Let me give you an example, some examples. When we get a promotion, it's better for our self-esteem if we believe that it's because we did a good job. I got the promotion. Why? Because I did a good job. It's less helpful to say, why did I get the promotion? I don't know, random circumstance, right? You know, when we graduate from college, why did we graduate from college? Well, because we studied hard. Uh, 
when someone likes us and doesn't cheat on, you know, when we get married and our spouse doesn't cheat on us and seems to like us, it's probably helpful to say, well, it's because I'm a lovable person and, and I choose good partners and I work hard on my marriage. So when things are going well, it helps to believe that it's because of our own actions. We see the world in a non-chaotic way. It's, it, the world is under our control if we just set our mind to things and pull our you know, self up by the bootstraps, which is an ironic phrase, turn of phrase if you really look up the meaning of it. Actually, doesn't mean, it means the opposite. But anyway, um, it's best if we see the world as non-chaotic. It's much more soothing that way. It's much more soothing to believe that if we try hard, we will succeed. Um, it gives us optimism about the future because we feel as though we can we uh, can change the future if we choose to do so. Uh, it gives us self-esteem because we attribute our success, our success to our actions and our positive characteristics. And so under most circumstances, this cognitive bias helps us. But when something bad happens to us, this cognitive bias is detrimental because we blame ourselves for being raped, for having depression. And we fall into deeper depression and we have low self-esteem, etc. And this sometimes prevents us from being able to recover from the event. When we blame ourselves for our depression, when we blame ourselves for being raped, this prevents us from being able to move forward. Because if that's the conclusion, then, you know, if we're just inherently a bad person or we're inherently rapeable or we're, we're just inherently not worth being happy, then why try? Because this is something inherently wrong with me, and why would I ever try? So people just don't recover. Um, so it's, it's a cognitive bias that we have under most circumstances that helps us, but in many circumstances doesn't. The third reason why we do this to ourselves is when we're young, we tend to see the world as simple and through a self-centered lens. For example, we've all heard of children who think their parents divorced because it's something that they did as a, as a child. There was a client I worked with who he was, I don't know, 10, 8 years old. And he was going through a lot. I was working with a family, the whole family. And it came to my attention that the youngest kid was experiencing a lot of distress it's really funny to think about him now because I saw this family so long ago that he's got to be he's got to be well into adulthood now. It's always weird to think about that. Um, but anyway, when he was eight or something, he was going through a lot of distress, and this is after uh, the parents had separated. They're going through a divorce, so I sat down with a kid one on one, and we started talking. And since a lot of kids blame themselves, I knew to ask questions along those lines, and it became revealed to me that he absolutely, 100% blamed his parents' divorce on him. And after more investigation, I found out specifically why. And I've told this story in the podcast before, but it bears repeating. This, the father had told the kid to mow the lawn. And the kid was like, okay, uh, I'll do it later. I'm playing Nintendo right now or something. And the dad was like, I need you to mow the lawn now. Which, by the way, eight years old mowing the lawn, I don't know. But anyway, the kid's like, I'll do it later. I'll do it later. And the kid goes upstairs, plays Nintendo, and doesn't mow the lawn. And then comes down, I don't know, a couple hours later. 
dad walks in from his den and sits the family down and says, I'm moving out. Uh, your parents and I, you know, me and your mom are getting a divorce. And, you know, the fam, the parents had the sit down talk with the kids in that moment. Well, to the eight year old kid, it was, you know, correlation and causation were the same thing. I didn't mow the lawn like my dad told me to. So my dad moved out and my parents are getting a divorce and our entire family is falling apart. Now, we've we've all heard of these stories, right? Now, incidentally, I worked a long time to help the kid not um, blame himself and to understand the, the the bigger picture of which was never really explained to him. We simply don't have the brain power or wisdom to see the bigger picture when we're children. And uh, we just simply don't have the ability to really understand that other people have minds of their own. They call this mentalization and this is something critical to development that when we're very young, we don't really have the ability to understand that other people even have minds, particularly when we're really young. But even as we're older, we like eight, 12 years old, we only have a limited ability to really understand the state of other people's minds. Um, another example that every parent can identify with is, you know, your kid wants something. They just they want a cookie or they want to play their video games or they want your cell phone or they want to play outside or they don't want to go to school or something. And, you know, they just want it now. They, that's all they don't, you know, they don't care what you say. And when we tell them, like, let's say the kid's like, I want a Nintendo machine. Um, and as a parent, you're like, oh, boy, I can't afford that right now, blah, blah, blah. And so you tell your kid, I'm sorry, but we can't afford that right now. Well, they don't really – children in their bad moments, they don't really understand that notion that you can't afford something. And they also don't really care that, you, that they can't afford it. Like I remember – I distinctly remember when I was four years old. Uh, it was, this is back in the day when checks were becoming quite – the way to pay for things in cash. You know, in the 70s, it, all, it became all about checks. And this is way before credit cards. 70s, only very fancy people had credit cards. And, and most merchants didn't accept credit cards, actually. So it was either as cash or check. And my mom wrote checks for everything. She rarely had cash on her. And I was always, you know, at my mom's hip as we're going around from store to store. And she's she just pulls out her checkbook, writes a check, and she buys it. And so to me, it was like... Oh, so that's how you buy things. You just you just pull out a check and whatever the amount is, you just pay for it. I had no concept that you had to deposit money into the bank and blah, blah, blah. And I remember uh, there was something I wanted my mom to buy. And, and sometimes – another detail here is sometimes my mom would run out of checks in her checkbook and she'd be like, oh, no, I don't have any checks. I can't buy that. And so it totally made logical sense to me that – as long as you had checks on you, you could buy anything you wanted. And I remember one time I was asking my mom to buy something. I think this is how the story goes. Either this is what happened or I imagine <laughs> – anyway, I think this is how it went. Um, it, and I know memory is malleable enough to understand that God knows what really happened. But anyway, I wanted something and my mom said that she couldn't afford it. And I said, well, do you have checks in your – purse? And my mom was like, well, yeah, I have checks. And then I said, well, then you could buy it. I don't understand. And she, she's like, 
well, it doesn't really work that way. You know, we have to have money in the bank. And I'm like, huh? And it took me a while to really understand that. So um, I say this because it shows how stupid I was at the age of four. (laughs) Not because I'm inherently dumb at four, but because four-year-olds, they don't understand the world. They don't understand how anything works. And so when we're really young, we not only do we lack the capacity to really be inside someone else's experience, but we also just lack the ability to understand just consequences and like how there's, there's things that we don't know about. Um, and so we tend to only notice our own feelings and we tend to um, notice our own desires and we tend not to notice other people's contexts and their feelings. Totally normal, totally normal for children to be that way. And if we're treated well enough, we grow up to be, you know, somewhat wise and mostly empathetic people. But when we're mistreated as children, we don't develop well. And sometimes this results in childish ways of thinking being retained into adulthood, like uh, seeing the world in a simple, self-centered manner. Also, when we're traumatized and distressed, we tend to regress to an earlier developmental phase. Regressing is an easy thing to see in children. When you are, you know, one of the things that I would notice in some of the kids that I would work with was you'd be working with a seven-year-old who was uh, attachment injured, either through late adoption or, you know, some kind of attachment disruption. And the seven-year-old, I'd be talking to the seven-year-old, and when the seven-year-old was stressed out and the seven-year-old was often stressed out, their demeanor would be that of like a three-year-old. They would talk in this very simplified form. They would, their voice would go up. They would be very needy and dependent. And to the uninitiated or the uneducated, they would go like, Johnny, stop acting like a three-year-old. Knock it off. Which is fine on some level, but more often it's better to just see, oh, well, what's stressing this kid out to make them regress? Now, sometimes this is seen as a manipulation, but a lot of the times it's not a manipulation. A lot of times it's just the child's way of returning to an easier way of living. You know, when we're stressed out, we tend to retreat to a, a more earlier form of life where we didn't have to make a lot of choices, which is attractive to us in some in some ways. You know, like, oh, God, I'm stressed out. I wish I didn't have to work. I wish I didn't have to take care of other people. I wish I could just, like... Um, you know, fall over into my mom's arms and she could feed me and take care of me and protect me from the world. You know, it makes sense. Well, to a seven-year-old, it also makes sense. So this is easy to see in children. It's harder to identify in adults because we tend to just look at it as like just bad behavior. For example, when someone cuts you off on the freeway and you start screaming at them and you're just completely unhinged, that's a regression. You're throwing a tantrum. It doesn't look like a childish tantrum necessarily because you're an adult using adult uh, swear words, but it's a tantrum in all likelihood. You're regressing. Again, totally normal to do that. I've done that. I do that all the time. You can even see crying, in a sense, is a normal regression when we're distressed. We're signaling that we want our mommies to come and soothe us. That's, that's why we have the mechanism of crying. It's because it alerts our caregivers, our mothers and our fathers, 
our aunts and uncles and grandparents, that we're in distress and we need help. So crying is a totally normal and functional regression is one way of looking at it. So when we're young, uh, we see things in this very simple manner. We see things in a self-centered way. And when we're mistreated as children, we tend to retain that simple way of thinking and that self-centered way of thinking. Also, when all of us are distressed, regardless of how much mistreatment we went through, we tend to regress to a more simple, self-centered way of thinking. So when we're raped, we tend to regress to an earlier phase of development, one that involves a simpler way of thinking, one that is self-centered, one that's more black and white. Thus, we really only understand the event as being derived from within ourselves, and thus we blame ourselves. So someone is raped, and they naturally regress because it's, it's a very distressing thing to have happen. And when they talk about being raped, they also become distressed often and regress to an earlier black and white way of thinking. And that earlier black and white way of thinking also involved simple explanations and self-centered explanations because so so as a as a an example of this when when someone's raped part of the healing process and part of the road away from blaming the self is to actually understand the mind of the rapist when when the when the victim understands the mind of the rapist or at least speculates about the mind of the rapist it helps the person to not blame themselves because you can you can look into the mind of the criminal and you see how why they would do such a thing that it's their compulsion or they were abused growing up or they have psychopathy they have some mental illness or something is wrong with them and you just happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time to understand to put yourself into the rapist's shoes in a in an odd way helps victims to recover in the same way but it's hard to do that because you're you're distressed you're you're under a lot of pressure and and you naturally regress and this is a subconscious process it's not on purpose um, in the same way that when, you know, my mommy doesn't buy a Nintendo for me and I'm really distressed and I, I'm like, how come I, no one loves me? No one ever buys anything for me. It helps me to understand the mind of my mother and understand that she is trying to budget for the family and she's under a lot of pressure and she has to make decisions about what we can afford and what we can't. And if she were to buy a Nintendo today, then she won't be able to buy any food for tomorrow. And if I understand what's going on in her mind, then it helps me cope and go, oh, it's not because my mom doesn't love me. You know, that's not why she's not buying the Nintendo for me. It's not because I'm inherently unlovable. That's not why this is happening right why it's happening right now is because she has a mind and a whole other set of consequences and contexts and feelings and 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 you know things that she's trying to think of to navigate that led her to the decision to not buy me a Nintendo. 
And so you understand that being able to mentalize. But again, when we're stressed out, we regress, which means that we have a limited capacity to really put ourselves in other people's shoes. We also have a limited capacity to not see the world as completely deriving from ourselves. And thus, we blame ourselves. That's just, you know, the third reason. Again, we have society blames us. That's why we blame ourselves. We also like to see the world as being non-chaotic and under our control. And so – and we like to retain our optimism. And so um, when something bad happens to us, that sort of gets misplaced in terms of, you know, we we attribute successes to our own – you know, good qualities. And that bias uh, is is great most of the time, but bad when we apply it to things like being raped. Um, also, there's this thing called regression. And, and also, if you've been mistreated growing up and you get raped, then you – if you're mistreated growing up, then you tend to see the world black and white anyway, even without being distressed. And then if you are raped, then – obviously you have a greater chance of seeing things in this black and white form. The fourth reason why we blame ourselves is because of the psychoanalytic uh, defense called masochism. Basically, some people have learned that it's better to throw themselves under the bus. For example, let's say that someone has an abusive mother and when she tries to fight back to, against the mother, um, that makes the abuse worse. So then she learns, the daughter learns, that it's better to take the initial abuse and not really fight back because if they fight back, it it doubles the abuse. So it's just like just take the abuse, just wait for it to be over. It's best just not to assert yourself. But But this leads to an internal dilemma. So you're not having the external dilemma anymore, but now you've now you've transported that dilemma to the inside. Because part of you knows, part of her knows that this abuse is terribly unfair and that she, she deserves to speak up for herself. But another part of her knows that it is terrible to express yourself. So there's this tension. Express yourself and be punished or, uh, or live with the notion that life is unfair and that your mom is a bad person. Which is another thing that we have a hard time tolerating is this notion that our parents are fallible because that makes us feel like, well, if our parents are fallible, then I'm truly, I'm truly left out on a, on a limb here because I need my parents to be able to protect me in times of need. So there's a number of dilemmas going on. So the solution is to believe that your parents are all good and that you're all bad and to suppress any notion of fairness or the evaluation of fairness. So when we suppress all those uh, notions of fairness, especially when it regards fairness to us, then we actually have a better life. You know, it's just like, not only do I not fight back, but I I don't even have a motivation to fight back because I, I don't even notice fairness because I've, I've, I've suppressed it so effectively. So I just have to assume everything's my fault. In fact, it's tied into attachment. When things are my fault and when I'm being punished, that's how I'm being loved. So all those things kind of get wrapped up. And now, you know, she's still going to get abused, which is bad. 
but she doesn't have the added consequence of having having the urge to fight back, uh, which is hard for her to contain. And she also doesn't have the added consequence of seeing the world as a terribly unfair place. And she also doesn't have the added consequence of seeing her, her mother as a terrible person. So this is the lesser of several evils, right? She's still going through abuse and she has to suppress her notions of fairness and she has to throw herself under the bus. These are all, you know, it's not great, but it's better than the alternative of actually fighting back. So this is masochism and this is a defense that we develop again early in life where it's just like, when in doubt, throw myself under the bus. And when this person grows up and becomes raped, again, that kicks in. When in doubt, throw yourself under the bus. It must be my fault because the fear is that if – because there's a part of the self, the part of the psyche that's like, wait a second. It's not my fault that I was raped. I need to pay attention to fairness here and I need to pay attention to my needs and I need to – and maybe by paying attention to that, that means I have to fight back. Well – what this uh, quickly turns into because of this learned brain mechanism you know, of masochism growing up is don't think that because it's just going to be worse. Essentially, symbolically, the person who was you know, raised like this after they're being raped, after they've been raped, they have this internal notion of like, wait a second, that was unfair. But that is quickly stomped on because there's this overwhelming anxiety that if she acknowledges that it was not her fault, then she has this subconscious fear that she'll incur, you know, 10 times the pain from some source, whether it be the rape perpetrator or someone else. So So it's so much safer to just assume that it's their fault. They're always to blame. But this doesn't resolve the issue. It's not like happily ever after. There's still that suppressed notion of fairness and and that suppressed assertiveness and then the suppressed anger. And it's not just the suppressed anger of that moment. It's the suppressed anger of their entire life. And this is where dependency and passive aggression comes in because people like this tend to burst at the seams in certain ways with their aggression and hostility because it has to come out somehow. Anyway, so that's masochism. The fifth and final reason as to why people blame themselves for rape is, uh, and I I left this one to last because I wanted this one to be the least emphasized. For some people, we'll say a very rare individual, say less than 0.001%, it's because they're trying to get attention. Again, if we go back to childhood, we have someone who was not loved enough, wasn't given enough love and attention and nurturing. And because of the way their family was situated, the way that they managed to get at least some love and attention was to scream like they were being abused um, or to um, come across like they're in a really bad state. Let's just put it that way. Like – Let's say in a family, uh, there's five kids, and the youngest kid really feels left out. But the kid notices over time through trial and error that if the kid starts screaming and starts claiming that the older siblings are bullying him, then all of a sudden, mom kind of sticks her head out from around the corner and says, what's going on in there? 
So over time, trial and error, little Johnny learns, if I claim that I'm being beat up and, and and I'm in distress, then my mom actually notices me a little bit. It's not great, but it's better than nothing. So this 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 is a unconscious process of development where the neurons essentially wire themselves so that whenever there's the possibility of screaming like something bad is happening, the self just kicks into that, especially when they are in distress and need people to be close to them. The catch-22 here is, or the paradox here, is that as they grow up and they actually exhibit what we call histrionics, in their adult life, people tend to be turned off by that. They might be turned on by it at first, like, oh, this person's in distress. But after a while, people go, geez, you you scream you're in distress all the time, and it's getting a little too much for me. So I'm, I think I'm done with this, and they move away. So it, it's shooting themselves in the foot. That's what makes it a schema and a personality disorder. And there's very, it's a spectrum, there's varying degrees. We all, we all have that histrionic tendency. It's just a matter of degree. So it's possible in this weird kind of uh, twist that if someone was raped and they have this histrionic trait, that part of the way their brain works is that if they continue to show that they're beating themselves up, people will pay attention to them because they believe that the only way they can get love and attention is to do that. They don't trust that if they just say, I need a hug or I need someone to listen to me. They don't they 100% do not trust that anyone will really care enough to actually pay attention to them. So they have to create some kind of crisis. And again, this is all subconscious. It's not like ha ha ha, I'm going to make a crisis. It's, it's totally out of the awareness and out of their control. And so they start creating crises and one of the billions of crises that someone could could manufacture unconsciously is to say I was raped and I and I'm to blame. Because they learn over time that, wow, when I say that phrase, when I say I was raped and I'm to blame, people tend to like pay attention to that because they want to help me not think that I'm to blame. So, again, I leave this one to the fifth explanation because taken in a certain light, this is essentially blaming the victim again, right? So I just want to point out it's pretty rare that it happens, but you know it can happen. Now, it, this doesn't mean we shake people by the shoulders and say stop doing this. What this means, if you do detect this in someone, you're just like, oh, I need to be that corrective experience for this person by giving them nurturing and love and attention, even when they're not, uh, you know, pointing out something that alerts a lot of trouble. You know, if that makes any sense. I need to give them a lot of love and attention um, regardless of what's happening in their life so that they feel that they can get unconditional love at all times, whether they're in a crisis or when they're not. So that's that. All right, Anonymous Patreon, I hope that answers your question. Let me know if it did or, or it didn't. And also, people out there, let me know what you think. All right, before reading another email, I just want to – Thank some of our new patrons. We got Marcus from Boulder. We got Kian from Oakland. We got April from Seattle. We have Daniel from Calgary. Gabriel from Tigard, Oregon. Never heard of it. Catherine from Annandale, New South Wales. We got uh, Jarl or Jarl from Colorado. Jennifer from Post Falls, Idaho. 
Lionel from Indiana, Francis from London, Sarah from, from Quincy, Mass. We got Diana, we got Larkin from Pennsylvania, Edith from California, Anne from California, Carol from Leavenworth, Washington, Shayla, Beth, Hallie, Jan, Deborah from England, Ina, Anita from Renton. I know you, Anita. I thought you already were a patron. Maybe, maybe not. Anyway, thank you all for becoming patrons. Super cool of you. All right, let's read, read this next email. Anonymous patron writes, does something like emotional masochism exist? Because when I'm hurting on the inside, I feel alive. I feel connected to the world and myself. I feel special. I feel important. I feel alive. I feel love. And also feel really, really bad at the same time. I also feel loved by the universe when I make myself feel bad. Am I crazy? When I'm having a good day and everything is going well for me, I find myself looking at videos on YouTube that make me really sad, like dramatic scenes in movies or tribute videos that get to the mood of emotional turmoil. It is a combination of music and movie scenes that carry a really strong emotional impact. And when all my negative emotions come flowing out of my soul, I continue on with my day. When these bad feelings aren't there, I want them back. Am I crazy? Why do I do that? My therapist said, maybe it's because something is better than nothing or something like that. But if that's true, why not look for some uplifting emotions? End of email. First off, it doesn't sound like masochism, um, or at least in the way that I define masochism. I don't really know if we have a clinical word for this, but it sounds extremely normal. It's, we all have this. You know, why do you think sad uh, things exist on YouTube? Why do we have sad movies? Why do we have sad songs? Why do we have sad art? Why are there sad books? Why are there things with sad endings? You know, we love sadness. Why? Well, unknown, really. But speculation? You know, what your therapist said, that's one speculation. It's better to feel something than nothing at all. Also, we have a lot to grieve on a daily basis. We are in a constant state of tragedy and loss and grief and pain and anxiety and loneliness. And we have a lot to be sad about. But because we're trying to be stand-up adults, we don't like to think about it. But when we're given a chance, yeah, it all comes pouring out. And guess what? It feels good because we have a need to express those, those sad emotions. And these sad stories give us you know, a chance to grieve those losses and those tragedies. I do this myself. Um, I recently watched the Pixar cartoon Inside Out. And I knew I was going to cry because I cried the first time. But I cried probably 10 times as much the second time I watched it. I basically sobbed uncontrollably for an hour straight. Uh, from the time Bing Bong dies to when at the end when the girl hugs her parents at the end. Why did I watch this thing knowing that I was going to cry? Why did I continue to cry? Why did I feel so good after watching the movie? It wasn't good. It was just satisfying. It felt good, good. But that's the whole point of this movie, actually, of Inside Out, which if you haven't seen, I recommend. As we mature, I mean, it has some of the most complicated emotional lessons that are taught to all of us in this movie, Inside Out. The notion, the notion that sadness is a good thing. Sadness is not negative. Sadness should not be avoided. That's the main plot point of this whole movie, which is genius. 
and that as we mature, we learn to mix our emotions in a wise way. Things are never purely happy. Things are never purely sad. That when we're sad and someone and we let our sadness out, it's not a sad moment. It's actually like a a happy, sad joy, depression, tragedy, triumph mixture. And that's what insight shows us is that these core memories have a mixture of emotions that we feel in the moment. And that's what it's like to be mature because we see lots of things. As we get older, when we have uh, something happy happen to us, in that moment, because we're balanced human beings, we recognize the sadness of things as well. That because I'm happy right now, I know that in the future I won't be this happy, and that makes me sad. Or conversely, when I'm sad right now, I recognize that in the future I'm going to be happy. And so in this moment, I'm not 100% sad and other kinds of mixtures. So it just feels good you know, to do that. It feels good to express sadness. We have a whole need to express sadness, and typically in our society, we're not allowed to do that or we're trying to act like adults, like I said. Um, so maybe that's something worth exploring. I, again, I wouldn't call it masochism. I would call it sadness catharsis, you know, but it is worth exploring with your therapist. Are you able to express sadness and pain in other arenas, with your friends, even with your therapist? Are you avoiding some past grief that has, you know, yet to be expressed and explored in your therapy and in your personal life? It's all possible. But all of us have just been through some, the older you get, you know, the amount of tremendous pain we've all been through and the amount of tears that we have left in us. One of the things that I tell clients and I guess occasionally students, but mainly clients, when they are distressed about how sad they are, you know, they'll just be like, I don't understand why I'm crying so much. I'm just crying all the time. And I'm crying throughout these sessions. All That's all I do from beginning to end. I just cry and cry and cry. It just seems so stupid. And it's such a weird notion that we have in our culture of somehow crying is bad, that it's annoying to people, that it's unhealthy to cry a lot. Why? Give me the evidence for that. Uh, and what I tell people is, well, your body has a certain amount of sadness. If we were to do this in some sort of quantitative robotic sense, which isn't a great metaphor, but it might help to see it this way, is you have this reserve of sadness, say, you have like 950 points of sadness that are inside of you. And every time you cry, you, you know, you erase one of those points. So by crying today in this session from beginning to end, you now only have, say, 940 points left in you. And every time you cry and every time you express yourself, you slowly erase those points of sadness inside you or you let out those that you know um, surplus of sadness inside you and eventually you'll get to zero but then the next day something sad will happen but your sadness reserve will only be at five and so you only have to cry for five points of sadness so but because your life has been such that you haven't been able to express your sadness and no one's been there for you or, or you've suppressed it You've built up a lot of sadness reserve. And so, yeah, it feels like you're crying all the time and it's never going to end. But 
it will end. It's just going to take a long time. So you might as well start now. <laughs> you might as well cry in times when it actually helps. Because for people who haven't been through tremendous tragedy and who have been raised well enough so that they don't suppress their sadness, they cry pretty much right after bad things happen or soon after. And then their sadness reserve is empty. It's about – it's the same way with all emotions, anger, joy, disgust, assertiveness, you know, all these kinds of things we tend to build up inside of us. It's just one way of looking at it. So it's quite possible that you, the anonymous uh, writer inner patron here, it's possible that you have a tremendous amount of reserve sadness and you don't really have ways of, ex of letting it out. But you found that when you watch sad YouTube videos and songs and movie clips, it allows you in that moment, it provokes it for you to express it and to feel it. And that's great. If that's all you can do, then great. Just keep doing it. Do it all the time. Do it when you need it. Um, my guess is, is every time you do that, and that's why it feels good because you're letting it out. It's like, why, why is bawling my eyes out and thinking about all these sad things? Why is it, why does it feel so good? Why do I, you know, you're like, I feel special. I feel important. I feel alive. I feel love. I, I feel loved by the universe. You know, another part of this is that you're taking care of yourself. So in the moment, when we mature and we have an emotion, we can at that moment step outside of ourselves and observe our own emotions. When we're very young, we can't differentiate the self from the emotion, but as we get older, we can. And so like when I was sobbing my eyes out in front of my computer watching Inside Out, I wasn't lost in my sadness. I could, look, I could periodically or simultaneously step outside myself and look at myself or observe my process and say, wow, Kirk, you're really crying right now. And in that moment, I know everything's going to be okay and that when the movie's over, I'll stop crying. And I also know that I'm just feeling sadness and everything's fine and I'm not going to cry forever. And in that moment, I said to myself, Kirk, I think you need to cry. I think you have, I think you have some built-up sadness in you and this is good. Let it out. Let it out, son. It's good. So in that moment, I'm taking care of myself. There's a, say, a parental figure that I'm, you know, identifying with or a therapist. The inner therapist is taking care of the inner child. Well, for you, anonymous patron, when you watch YouTube videos, I'm guessing that that's what's happening to you, too. You're, you're letting your inner child cry while letting your inner therapist or inner parent take care of that inner child. And in that moment, you feel loved. It's a, when you allow yourself to cry in a mature way, you're, you're parenting yourself. And so it, it feels like you're being loved, even though it's sort of like, you know, m masturbation nurturance, if that makes any sense, which is fine. So you're taking care of yourself and it's like, wow, I feel really loved because you're loving yourself in that moment. So that's, I don't know if that's what's happening. Let me know. If, if any of this makes any sense to you. And people out there, do you have a similar experience? Do you love to make yourself sob? Is that something that makes you feel better? Do you feel a release? What do you look at to make yourself cry? I, I want to know so I can look at those things and get a good cry out. Do you feel connected to the world? Do you feel special? Do you feel alive when you're crying? You know, one of the things that uh, I, I noticed about myself when I was 
a teenager. So this is before, you know, emo, the, the term emo was developed in the 90s, at least made popular. But in the 80s is when emo really kind of started. And we didn't have a word for it. In my town of Issaquah, we called people bat cavers because <laughs> it looked like they were pe- people who lived in bat caves because <laughs> they would wear all black, you know, basically the Robert Smith or the Cure kind of look. There are people like that. And I was kind of like that too. I, I dipped a toe into that world. I mean, I definitely loved all the music and the attitudes. Uh, you're, I loved The Cure and I loved Depeche Mode and I loved The Smiths and I loved, you know, I just, I loved sad music. When I first started writing music, all my lyrics were sad. One could argue that even today that's true. I just love writing sad, um, just sad songs. Um, there was a time when I tried to write happy songs on purpose and it was really hard for me to do. I mean, even, even when I did write quote unquote happy songs, I always, I always wrote really sad lyrics, really depressing lyrics. And I remember thinking to myself back then, it's just like, why do I do this? And Kurt Cobain actually has this line in, in one of his songs where he says, um, I actually can't remember the lyrics or the song. I, I'd have to look it up. It would take me a while. Anyway, it's some Kurt Cobain line where he says something like, um, uh, I'm only happy when I'm sad or I'm happiest when I'm sad, something like that. I'm sure sure some of you people know exactly what song I'm talking about. Um, and so, and when he, you know, when I heard that line, because Kurt Cobain and I come from a very similar ethic and part of the world and art, artistic expression, I'm sure we're very different people in all likelihood, but the way that he sees art is very similar to the way that I see art because we both came out of a very similar cultural zeitgeist and place and time and it's it's one of that uh, through sad art i am happiest and happy art doesn't really make me feel much at all but sad art makes me so happy and i remember it would really confuse some people i would write music and record it and i would Back in the day when you had you would burn CDs, I would send CDs in the mail to like people because there was no internet really, so I couldn't really share songs with people. It was the only way I could share my music, and I would I would just mail I would just these I would record an album I, I would burn a CD and then I would just mail it to everybody. Um, and I remember one of my uncles uh, came to me and he's like, "Yeah, I listened to your." your new CD and I really like the music, but you know, some of your lyrics, it's, it's just so sad. And I really think you should write happier songs because it's just so sad. (laughs) And I remember just being so confused and, and, you know, dumbfounded at his attitude about it. Cause to me, the sad songs, the saddest songs that I would write made me so happy in this really weird way. Like I have this one song that I, it actually has a pretty um, happy tune to it. Um, and actually I'll insert it here. So let's listen to a clip of that. be 
there when I'm dead Brothers, sisters, parents, cousins Aunts and uncles, nieces, nephews Sure of the friends there will be So in that song, in that song clip, it, to me, it's sort of an upbeat song. Like if you just heard the the backing track, you'd be like, oh, it's, you know, it's kind of upbeat. There's a little lament to it. So sort of, and it's sort of a happy, sort of jumpy sort of feel. But the lyrics are incredibly sad to me. I mean, you know, will will anyone be there when I'm dead? And then the last line, you know, it's, I'm talking about like, well, you know, will my will anyone be there? Aunts and uncles. I'm sure the friends there will be few. That sort of has a double meaning of like, I'm guessing some of my friends will be dead by the time I'm dead. But also, it's just like you know, when I was, I wrote this when I was 26 and maybe younger. And I was thinking, you know, are my friends going to still be around when I'm older? It's just sort of sad to think about, you know, because I would look at older people and a lot of them didn't really have friends. And I was just like, man, is that my fate too? So it was all this sort of reflection of like, God, when I'm dead, who's going to be there? Uh, was, is anyone really going to care? I don't even know. And then I just had this thought of just like, will the minister even know my name? <laughs> you know, like, because I've been to a lot of, not a lot, but some funerals, and sometimes it just seems as though the minister doesn't really even know the dead person very well. And the minister is presiding as sort of a leader and a guide, but it's probably a little impersonal to the ministers because the minister might be doing it a lot, right? And I just had this thought like, will the minister even know my name? And it's so sad to me to think about that. But man, do I love to feel that kind of sadness. It's not a defeating sadness. It's not a painful, excruciating sort of sadness. It's, it's uh, I don't know, it's as you talk about, the sort of liberating sadness that in a sense makes me feel loved right now in this weird way, connected to the universe. And I, I'm guessing some of you more sort of art critic-y people or people who studied art in college or something, I'm sure there's some concept that I just, I'm just not aware of in the literature. I'm sure that this whole phenomenon for humans has been discussed at length in the art community. So email me about that at contact.psychologyinseattle.com if you want to. But I've known about this for a long time. I, I'd like you, anonymous patron, feel alive when I'm when I sort of make myself feel terrible. <laughs> now, it's not, it's a controlled terribleness. And maybe that's why it feels good is it's under control. When I'm watching Inside Out, I can always turn it off. When someone dies, like when my cat dies, actually, let's look at that. So a recent um, loss of mine was my dog dying and then my cat dying. Both were incredibly 
sad for me. And the amount of sadness and tears and sobbing around those times and just pain. When my dog died, she died, uh, quote unquote, of natural causes. Uh, I won't go into the details because I've talked about it in other – I think I did a whole episode about her dying actually. But for her, it was, quote unquote, natural causes. It was – you know, but my cat – was dying and I took him in to be put down, to be euthanized. And he was alive, which just breaks my heart. You know, he's alive. He's still looking at me. He's still kind of purring when I'm petting him. But he was, according to the vet and my observation, for really months just slowly dying. And there wasn't anything anyone could do. We did all the tests. He was just old. And I had to make this choice to put him down. And there he is looking at me, you know. And so the pain of that, that doesn't make me feel good at all, okay. (laughs) Now, it makes me feel good to process those feelings and to let them out for sure. But that kind of painful loss and grief of – Looking at my cat, whom I love dearly and was there for me through it all over the past, you know, 10 years, and was just such a sweet little boy, for me to look at him and be like, okay, I got to go now, and this person I'm giving you to is is going to kill you. You know, it's just, it's for your own good, but I know you don't know that, and you're defenseless and you have no choice in the matter. And, you know, is there something more I could do? Could I give you another few hours? Yeah, I could, but I've got to get to work. You know, I, I, this, I don't have, I, you know, it's just, it was just, you know, the worst probably shouldn't have done that before I got to work. My wife advised against it, but did it anyway. Anyway. So when I think about that kind of pain, that is not the kind of sadness that I write about or want to be around in my um, you know, music. I can approach it kind of. And like I said, it feels good. You know, if, I, if I have a need, like if I guess sometimes when I look at cat videos or something, it'll remind me. Or when I look at vi- – I took a lot of videos of that cat, of my cat, and I would you know, sometimes watch videos of him. But it's painful. That's a – to me, anyway, my experience. That's a different kind of sadness. It's more painful. It's more excruciating. And it's not something I typically try to gravitate towards in my quest to have sad, happy feelings. Anyway, let me know what you think about it. Let's go on to another email. All right, this next email is from Dr. Joel. He often writes to me with some very interesting questions and comments and experiences and articles. And he sent an article, a New York Times article that I thought we would look at here briefly, uh, written by Nellie Bowles. And it's titled, Silicon Valley Goes to Therapy. Bummed out by the world and their role in it, tech workers are seeking help and founding some startups along the way. So essentially what they're talking about here is uh, apps, phone apps that can be adjuncts or replacements for therapy. And so let's, let's read um, some of this article here. 
Uh, the best therapists get you better 10, per, 10 times faster than the average ones. Promises one startup, Kip. So Kip is the startup. We took world-class providers, supercharged them with our smart software tools, and designed a seamless experience for both clients and providers. Uh, the gym for the soul. Um, let's see. Blah, blah, blah. Uh, we, what we're out to build is a new mental health system. The company raised $21 million in August. So they say here, traditional therapists scribble notes and review them later, possibly with a mug of chamomile. In the KIPP system, notes quickly turn into data. Weeks of therapy are broken down with quizzes to determine exactly how happiness and anxiety levels are progressing and how quickly. Um, KIPP offers an app that encourages clients to record their moods in real time, prompted by questions that a therapist can choose to have pop up throughout the day. Uh, the new data could provide insights that typical therapists would not come up with on their own, blah, blah, blah. Um, yeah, so I support this. It's fine. It's great. Uh, it is limited. People think like, oh, you know, AI. For th This is actually has nothing to do with AI. It has a, it has a slight, probably has a little bit to do with, a, with like program if-thens. But there's this app actually connects actual, you know, real therapists with clients, the app essentially becomes a tool that the therapist can use to better meet the needs of the client. So the app will remind you to log your mood. And if your mood is in a certain place, certain things can pop up on the app that the therapist might say in real time. So for example, I don't know if this is the case, but so for example, if you had a client who suffered from ups and downs in terms of their mood, uh, we could work together, me and the client could work together and say, okay, what, what do you need to hear? What do you think would be helpful for you to hear when your mood is really bad and you're really down on yourself and you're really blaming yourself? Well, one of the things that the client might come up with would be like, well, what I need to hear is that it'll get better. And right now it's just a really bad time and I, I just need to get through this bad time, and, and it'll get better. It's not always going to be this bad. Okay. Well, let's write that in to the comment sort of if-then statements. And when you're in a bad mood and when you log your mood as being in a bad mood, this, this thing will pop up, and it will be your words telling you that everything's going to be okay and that you just have to get through this bad time. So that could be one sort of effective way. The person isn't completely on their own. They don't have to remember to say that to themselves because the app will tell them automatically. So there's a lot of things that apps like this can help with. Now, the other thing here is that the, um, the app is only is, is limited to certain kinds of treatment, right? They're gearing it to anxiety and depression, which if you've heard me say this before, you're going to hear me say it a million more times, which is that very few clients come to therapy purely for depression or anxiety. I, in my 20 plus years, have literally never had a client come to me just for depression or just for anxiety. The anxiety is the result of something, or it's just one of the 10 things that needs to be talked about in therapy. And same with depression. It's not that I don't treat anxiety, because I do. I treat phobias. I treat general anxiety, and so on. It's not that I don't treat mood disorders, because I do that as well. 
but it's just rare that that's the only thing. And so this app might be great for anxiety and depression, which is great, but there's so many other things that need to be done in therapy. Um, Now, going back to the pro side of apps like this, maybe an app like this can facilitate corrective experiences for clients, which I'm a big fan of and promote with all my clients, in that maybe the app can be programmed in such a way that it makes the client feel like they're tethered to their therapist throughout the week and not just when they're in their office. I don't know how you do that, but you know, maybe there's a way to do that. Maybe there's little videos that can pop up. Like instead of when you're in a bad mood, this, you know, written script kicks in. Maybe it's a video of my face saying things like, Hey, you've been here before. Everything's going to be okay. Uh, you're in a bad mood right now and it sucks, but it'll get better. Just you know, hold on. You know what to do. Or even with suicide, for example, you could have suicidal scripts. You know, as your suicidal ideation goes up, you could have certain safety scripts that kicked in, that kick in. Now, these apps have been on the market for a long time, by the way. They just haven't been very popular. You know, there's no Facebook of mental health apps, as far as I know. I suspect in the future, one will emerge or a set of, you know, big popular apps will emerge regarding mental health. And they will innovate as time goes on and their functions will go, you know, the same way that Facebook, when it first came out, was you know, not what it is today. In fact, when it first came out, it wasn't even a phone app at all. It was just, you know, for computers and browsers. But so like Facebook, they wanted to uh, meet a need in society and lots of other things had come out before that, MySpace and, you know, Friendster and all these other places. But Facebook became the one that survived and they continued to innovate. Well, uh, someday there will be a mental health app that will, or a set of mental health apps that will do the same. Um, But because our society doesn't really care about this sort of thing, uh, it's just taking a long time for us to pay attention to it. But anyway, interesting article, Dr. Joel, thanks for sending it. All right, this last email, I think is an important email for everyone to hear. Uh, It was for me to, to read. Anonymous patron writes, My question is about the validity of psychological distress brought on by this fabulous little disease I have called vitiligo. Growing up with half Mexican blood in my veins, I always had a great tan. When I was about 18, some patches of white started to show up around my eyes. Someone told me that it happens from the tanning bed. They told me to put some Selsun blue on it every day and it would just go away. Well, it did not. Over time, I started to get small white dots on my hands and chest and eventually on the small of my back. At 23, I got married and my husband, who has been such a support from day one, encouraged me to see a dermatologist as the spots were spreading and I was getting more and more anxious about them. The dermatologist told me that I have vitiligo. And though there are creams and light therapies that I can try, there is no cure for this disease. She would take pictures of the progression of my skin each time I saw her. She also told me that in all likelihood, it would continue to spread for the rest of my life. 
Throughout my 20s, it spread, and I would sit in my closet and cry when I would get dressed, particularly in the summer when it was time for a swimsuit. I slowly got stronger emotionally and would, te- and would tell myself that if anyone could handle this, it would be me, that I would become a positive force for my body image for all the women I knew. Surely, if I could wear a swimsuit looking like a giraffe, they would feel better about their a little bit of cellulite. I feel this way most of the time, but there would be other times when emotions and doubts of my self-worth would bubble up. Adults stare at my arms. Children point at me and ask what's wrong with my skin. Someone asked me once if it hurts or why I don't just do what Michael Jackson did and go and get all my skin bleached. Now I'm in my early 30s. I have a beautiful daughter with beautiful skin. The other day, I was seeing my primary care doctor for a checkup, and she said, Did you see there's a model who has vitiligo? Pretty cool that it's, that it's becoming a thing, huh? I mean, I wouldn't trade it with you, but it's cool. I don't think I read that very well. Let me try that again. <laughs> Let me try to act like this terrible doctor again. Did you see there's a model who has that vitiligo? Pretty cool that it's becoming a thing, huh? I mean, I wouldn't trade it with you, but it's cool. I sort of just nodded, a little taken aback by what she was saying. Was I supposed to be super excited? Later that week, I was putting my daughter in the bath, and I leaned down to turn off the water, and I looked at my legs, which are completely spotted. I burst into tears. It came as such a shock. Why was I crying? Shouldn't I be over this by now? After all, as people keep telling me, it's just cosmetic. It's, it's not like I have cancer or something. A few days later, the tears came again as my husband and I were having a small argument. He asked me what I was feeling, and having just listened to all your deep dive and understanding my preoccupied attachment history, I realized that when the chips were down, when someone I love was angry, I was feeling unworthy of love. In that moment, I wanted to die. I didn't just want to live, I didn't, I didn't want to live with this skin anymore. It is the personification of all my worries and fears. I have to wear my heart on my sleeve in a way. I have a loving husband, a beautiful daughter, a kind mother, and supportive friends. So why can I not just get over this? So I decided to see a therapist for the first time in my life. The appointment is set, but I'm wondering if I should just get over it. It is, after all, just cosmetic. What are your thoughts? Well, my, my first thoughts are, I'm terribly sorry that this is happening to you. Yeah, it is, quote unquote, just cosmetic. But we're taught from a very early age that when you're different, there's something wrong with you and you shouldn't be different. You should try to conform, especially for women when it comes to the way that they look. And so even though you just say, well, you know, it's just cosmetic, uh, you know that intellectually, you've been taught from an early age that you need to be ashamed of these things. Also, you know, because you've interacted and interfaced with people in the world, that they don't think of it as just being cosmetic. They think of it as something that's wrong, that's a flaw, that's ugly or disgraceful or terrible or whatever. I mean, your primary care physician it was trying to be nice to you, but inadvertently was terrible. 
she says, you know, hey, you know, there's this there's this model with vitiligo. That's that's pretty cool that it's becoming a thing. Huh? That's pretty great. I mean, I wouldn't want to have it vitiligo. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's a terrible thing, but it's cool for you. I mean, what an asshole. I mean, Jesus Christ. <laughs> God. I mean, I wouldn't want to trade with you, but geez, you know, I guess it's good for you. I mean, come on. <laughs> uh, so it, it, it makes sense that after that, you know, so you say, you know, I just sort of nodded. And I was a little taken aback. Um, later that week, I was putting my daughter in the bath and I leaned down. And I looked at my legs and I burst into tears. Well, because your your doctor shamed you in that moment. And it's, it's one thing if some random three-year-old points at you and stares. It's another thing when your doctor, who's supposed to fucking know better, that for them to give these idea that you're like a subclass citizen that they wouldn't wish on themselves is um, another thing, you know, it's going to get under your skin, so to speak. Right. So yeah, it's great that you've processed it, that you've um, done what you can. And for the rest of your life, you're going to interface with this thing about society. It's the same about say, just being black, being African American in the United States. Um, you know, wise black people understand that, hey, I I know I'm a good person. And just because I have, you know, brown, dark brown skin doesn't make me a criminal, doesn't make me stupid, doesn't make me a bad person, doesn't make me worthy of being shot. I know that intellectually. Uh, and therefore, I, I'm not going to believe that. Okay, that's a great step. But as an African-American, you still got to bump up against the bullshit of society on a daily basis, and that's going to feel painful, and you're going to cry about it. Because that, what else are you going to do as part of your emotional process? I mean, obviously, you can fight back, blah, blah, blah. I kind of wish you would tell your primary doctor, uh, okay, I know you're trying to be nice with that, but actually what you're saying is really hurtful. For you to say that... uh, you wouldn't like to be me. Uh, you know, I, I guess I understand that intellectually, but that's not a very nice thing to say. <laughs> you know, uh, you're overweight and I'm not going to look at you and go like, um, you know, it's really great that they have overweight models today. And uh, I mean, I wouldn't want to be overweight like you, but you know, good for you. Uh, come on, right? Like, <sighs> so you're bumping up against that all the time. And although you've learned to live with it, because you have to, right? It's just like, what are you going to do? But that is a stress, man. That's that's rough. And a lot of us have things like this. African-Americans, women who work in primarily male-dominated fields, men who work in primarily female-dominated fields, trans people on a daily basis, any queer LGBTQ plus IA person, uh, short people, overly tall people, not overly, but, you know, on the far end of the spectrum, tall people, people with low IQs, people with learning disabilities, people, bald people, people who have, who sweat a lot, people who have bad breath a lot, people who have a stutter. Yeah. Over time, you're just like, 
fuck it. I have a stutter and I'm just going to have to learn to just accept that and not beat myself up about it and, and say, hey, I have a stutter, no big deal. Well, great. That's a wonderful phase, but that doesn't change the fact that society and people are going to treat you like shit apparent, you know, uh, uh, occasionally. And that's going to make you, that's going to make you hurt. And that's going to make you sob uncontrollably sometimes. The other thing I want to uh, highlight is your wisdom around your own preoccupied attachment and that how your uh, skin situation symbolizes to you your worthlessness and how you're not worthy of being loved and how when you you know notice your skin it reminds you of this deeply felt sense that you're just not worthy of love that you acquired from from day 1 you know the way your parents treated you from day 1 until you were you know 5 years old you learned the lesson that you weren't worthy and then when you became older and the vitiligo started to show up then the skin condition was some kind of uh, symbol for that as you're telling me which you know makes sense that that would happen and as you're fighting with your husband you're feeling worthless you're feeling like you're feeling like you're being rejected and then all that is getting mixed up with you know the vitiligo and it's like you just have this sense you know when preoccupied people they don't just sort of like yeah i'm probably not lovable no preoccupied people deeply believe that they're not lovable, that they're rejectable, that they're abandonable, that no one will ever love them. It's inherent. It is something about them. If you've heard people talk when we I interview them about their schemas, you, you'll hear them talk about that. It's like, yeah, I have that notion that I'm not worthy of being loved or no one will ever really love me and no one really ever has. So it is, it is, it feels innate to people with preoccupied attachment, particularly at the you know higher end of the spectrum. And your skin is also innate. It's something about you you can't change. And it's something that if someone takes notice, they will notice about you. And you've been taught throughout the time that if there's something weird about you, um, there's something weird about your skin that's different, then there's it's gross it's disgusting it's it looks like disease or i don't know whatever the case may be but it's rejectable and so it's natural for those two things to be intertwined that they're both innate things about you that a part of you believes that you are unworthy of love and unworthy of being taken care of and that just makes me feel so sad that you have a variation in pigment on your skin and we as human beings are so stupid that we can't fucking realize that maybe it's just, you know, it's just a variation in pigment. <laughs> like uh, that, I mean, I get for like three seconds where it's like, wait, what's happening? And then, but we should very quickly be able to overcome that. And I, I don't know, it just makes me sad. And there's so many examples of this. There's just so many examples. Um, you know, as a half Asian person, I, I, I've grown up with a lot of weird reactions, especially when I was younger in the seventies and eighties lately, um, in Seattle anyway, there's a lot of Brown people, a lot more Brown people. But when I was growing up, very few, especially in Issaquah where I grew up, there were almost none. When you look at like my class pictures in my elementary school and whatnot, you would just see all white people and then me. And although I'm pretty goddamn white, I'm half white and plus 
my my half Japanese side isn't very noticeable. When you put me in a sea of other completely stark white kids, I definitely look a little weird. Again, particularly in the 70s and 80s when, you know, a little bit of a slanty eye was something strange. Believe me, it was pointed out to me a lot. That's what I'm talking about. It's just like you're just walking around the world and you just you just want to you just want to be able to walk through the world. You don't want to have to be burdened by this, you know, constant like what's going on with that person, you know? What who is it? What kind of what what race is that? Where are you from? What kind of what kind of race are you? What's going on with you? You know, what's going on with your skin? Tell me what's uh, huh. You know, it's just all those kinds of things. It's just so much stress. It's like, God, you know, it's like, can't everyone just see me for as, you know, the, okay, fine. I have, I have vitiligo, but I'm also a woman and I'm also, uh, you know, wearing a red shirt and I'm also walking tall. And I, you know, like, why do you have to focus on that fucking detail all the fucking time? (laughs) Is that all that I fucking am? So... I'm glad you're going to therapy. Let me know how that goes because I'm guessing you've got a lot of healing to do because you deserve that. And, um, you know, I commend you for this email. And, you know, all of you listening, I hope uh, if you weren't aware, and maybe many of you are, of vitiligo is to, um, you know, try not to focus on it so much. Unless the person wants you to focus on it. But in all likelihood, they don't want you to focus on it. It's the same with people in wheelchairs, for example. You know, a lot of people walking around in, or not walking around, a lot of people rolling around in wheelchairs will say the same thing. They'll just be like, I just want to be treated like a normal person. I don't want to be treated like I'm a person in a wheelchair. Okay, fine. I'm in a wheelchair. That's, you know, true. But I don't want to be treated like that's the main sort of detail of my life. I want to be treated like I'm a human being who reads books and likes movies and likes to talk and wants to have sex and, you know, gets sad and, you know, does stupid things sometimes, gets too drunk and too high sometimes. I just want to be treated like a human being, you know? So I don't know. I'm ranting. I haven't really thought about it that clearly. So I don't know. Maybe I said some stupid shit in there. Let me know. All right. um, Let's all... Just try to take care of each other as best as we can. Maybe I should sign out like that today. Please take care of other people because we all deserve that.